This is JU Israel Teachers Lounge, where we reach out to current Gap Year students, alumni, and any interested listeners, keeping you connected to what's happening in Israel and giving you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, here, as always, with co-host Alan Goldman. I am the Senior Israel Educator. Alan is the... JU Israel Director. That's right. How's it going? Going well. Awesome. Also here with Program Manager Rena Levin. How's it going, Rena? It's going well. Now, Matt Littman, uh, Israel Educator and Producer of this podcast, will be here presently. Uh, we once again have some timing issues, but... We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, today's topic is we're going to do a quick news update from last week's episode, but our main topic today is uh, the Oslo peace process and how it affects us today. Right. Since we're 25 years on. Yeah. Right, that's so we're going to round out our uh, historical events that have impact on our lives today on their something fifth anniversary. <laughs> uh, Alan, do you want to give us a quick update on uh, last week's stories? Uh, okay, great. Um, so first of all, Laura Al-Kassam, the airport lady who Mike affectionately called airport lady, who's also known as the Hebrew U masteral um, student, master student, airport lady. Um, <laughs> is actually began her master's as the Supreme Court overturned the lower court's ruling and the interior minister's um, claim that she uh, fit into this law of not allowing someone who promotes uh, delegitimization of Israel into or supports into Israel. The Supreme Court overruled it and said um, she clearly does not fall into that um, category and was immediately uh, accepted into her program. And God willing, she'll do well and she will become a staunch um, uh, supporter of Israel's democracy. Could even happen. Even though she experienced some, you know, trials and tribulations, but that's democracy. I think that's what we always argue here. Right? Uh, I think so. I think I think the fact that democracy won in the end, and it took till the Supreme Court, but I think the fact that democracy won should be uh, evidence to her of what Israel is. And I would even argue, and we were having this discussion in my class yesterday at MTVA, and you know, people are shocked she was detained for 15 days. And I mean, again, it's not a good thing. But but the truth is that's also part of democracy. She wasn't ex like she wasn't removed from the country. She mm -hmm. said, I, I want to contest this in the court, and she was given that that privilege. Yeah, that is democracy. Look, you know? we we had you know we had this argument several years, episodes ago with David Harris that you can't hold democracy to the standard of perfection. Democracy right. is a system. Society is imperfect. Democracy is a system that we try to work these things out. Uh, honoring the rights of individuals, democracy worked. Yeah. So you can talk about the problems that exist in Israel, and they're real, but it is functionally a democracy, and her yeah. right to her to exercise her visa and study in Hebrew U was uh, right. accepted. And, and I hope she yeah. and those students uh, exercise their right to post those nasty posters. Did you see that? Oh no! Basically there were some posters and we, ads. We don't, we want, don't you want you here. Oh. Well, yeah, for sure, there you go. Listen, <laughs> they have at work. <laughs> that is, they have freedom to say those things and mm -hmm. hang those posters. Uh, odious uh, language is as long as it doesn't threaten her. Correct, Physi you know, physical harm or lead to an imminent threat right. to her person. Right. So, so okay, right. yeah, gross people get to say what they want to be gross. Um, which, uh, uh, and by the way, I understand their sentiment. I'm not, I'm not dismissing the. The sense of national pride that makes it uncomfortable to have people who hate you in your university. I understand the sentiment. I thought the expression was rather harsh, but okay, free country. 
Um, and the second issue that we discussed was what's happening in Gaza. Um, and there's actually – lots happened between now and our last episode. Um, there was a rocket attack that hit Beersheba um, and destroyed a good portion of a house. Um, thank God the mother acted very quickly and was able to Save get her kids. three children into – um, their shelter before the rocket hit. Otherwise, I mean that's heroic. Yeah. I, I understand the temptation in the middle of the night of just going, ah, it's not going to hit me. I'm rolling over. Yeah, good for but, her. But you didn't. Good for her. And the truth is, that act of hers is not only heroically saving her children, may have saved many other lives because we would have been in a very different situation. Mm. Israel was able to up its rhetoric, and not only its rhetoric, but it started moving troops to the border, including. Um, Lots of uh, infantry soldiers along with tanks and and other um, uh, vehicles and basically threatened Hamas that, you know, they're going to go in if things don't tone, turn tone down, if they don't turn the, the heat way down. And Hamas responded by turning the heat way down. They were also extremely embarrassed because those rockets went off when there was an Egyptian delegation there trying to discuss toning mm. down and, the, and cease fire again with Israel. So... They got a lot of pressure, so things, you know, backtracked now. So Israel, you know, we're back into that sort of quiet, very, very low-level tension, some rioting, but keeping it more away from the fences. Hamas, even last Friday, put out, um, uh, what are they called, uh, a cruise uh, announcements. Fatwa. Yeah, whatever, announcements don't get too close to the fence. And so there, it's not that it's, it completely stopped, but it was – significantly, significantly less than it's been in the last last few weeks. Um, and so we're now, again, once back into that that quiet time, you could say. Okay. It, again, nothing solved, but um, at least for the time being, they're able to tone it down without having to ramp up to the next level of, of really going into Gaza. And I think that that mother actually – Stop that from happening because it had to have been loss of life, God forbid. Israel would have had to act. Israel would have had to act. I, I think also the takeaway from the, the this past week is a reminder uh, for some and a correction for others. Hamas really has their 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 hand on the dial. Very, very nice. Exactly. Of energy up, energy yes. down for these things. That there is, of course, a grassroots element. People are doing this because of their frustrations. But Hamas really... Yeah, 100%. It's fine-tuning the level. Fine and remember that. Remember yeah. that. When people say, what do you mean? It's just a uh, – mm, yeah, it's a mix. But Hamas really controls. Right. I, I don't think Hamas would have just ordered them to run out if there wasn't that popular sense of frustration, which Hamas is directing at Israel instead of themselves. Right. But when Hamas wants it to tone down, it tones down. Right, correct. And that's what Israel claims all the time. That's why mm -hmm. they hold Hamas responsible. Yeah. Even when they say, well, it wasn't us who shot the rocket. Right. It was uh, whatever. Actually, one theory was it was lightning. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that one. That was a good nope, one. Nope, missed that one. <laughs> but, um, but Israel says they hold Hamas responsible for what's going on there. They control. They're the yep. government. You know, whether, you, whether you think they're a legitimate or illegitimate government, they still are the address. That is the Bush doctrine, essentially, yeah. that, that, those, that if you are – running an area where terrorists are acting, then you have to be responsible for the behavior of those terrorists. Right. So that's our little update from last week's issues. Um, 25 now, years. 25 years. <laughs> Not so long. I remember less than half my life ago. <laughs> well, yeah, this we can remember as, as more or less adults, not necessarily at the maturity exactly. level of adults, but at least the memory abilities of adults. Not everyone. <laughs> Not everyone. I, I remember it well. And there is a recent – this week, there is a news story of Jordan 
uh, pulling back from one element of the deal, a 25-year-old element of the deal, which is expiring. Yeah. You want to fill people in on the current events aspect of Oslo? Uh, so Israel, in part, after Oslo process began with the Palestinians, all of a sudden it opened up many opportunities. Um, and that's something that we've talked about in terms of light of Oslo, um, which people often don't talk about. And one of those opportunities was the ability to actually come to a real peace agreement with Jordan. Um, Jordan had really been Israel's oldest ally in the area, but it was always hush-hush. Um, so to the fact that in 1973, King Hussein personally came over to meet secretly the Golden Meir to warn her that the war was coming. Mm-hmm. So uh, Israel, well, she had gone to secretly meet with him yeah. a number of times to, to try to keep them out of... Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Also, so Israel always had secret connections with Jordan that were very strong. Well, there really After, is, A, there's no cause of enmity. Jordan rules essentially a mostly Palestinian population. They would like things kept as quiet. Jordan right. is also really one of the only Arab regimes set up by England and France after World War I that's still in power, that hasn't been overthrown right. in a local popular uprising. So they like stability. They like Israel sort of keeping things calm at their border. Right. And so so in 1994, a year after the Oslo process began, Israel and Jordan signed the peace agreement. And part of that peace agreement was that there's certain land that, that Israel acknowledges as Jordanian land. Um, but that Israel had been working, farming on what have you. And so Israel leased it from Jordan for 25 years. And so those farmers, 35 families, I think it is, one piece in the south in the Arava, another piece up north in uh, Naharaim, which is also called the Peace Island or was. Um, and those two pieces have a 25-year lease and they work them. And now Jordan just came out because of inner politics in Jordan, uh, where you're saying this delicate balance um, they are going tough on the Israel, uh, the Israel track, as we see often happens, just like with Hamas, to, to deter, um, you know. Uh, well, they're criticized. Their government has been criticized for being too soft on Israel. And right. so this. But not only, but, but even the problems there, economic problems in yeah. Jordan, a huge uh, um, refugee crisis that's come from Syria. These things are, are pressing. So to, to divert attention, that's the word I was looking for, divert attention away from, from those issues. So go on this, the Israel track. The Israel track is to cut this lease. And part of the agreement was that there needs to be a, a year notice. And the year before, so that's what they just gave to Israel, a year notice. They're going to take that land back and no longer lease it to, to Israel. Israel. And now part of the peace agreement is there's a year of negotiations that can happen. Mm-hmm. So the truth is not uprooting the peace agreement. They're just invoking a very legitimate part of it. So the peace agreement is still very strong. Well, it's, it's political it's nice more than politics, practical. They're yeah. not looking for that farm exactly. for themselves. It's political. Yeah, correct. And we'll see how it gets played out in a year. They may not, in the end of the right. day, force those Israeli farmers off that land. Right. I don't know. Right. We'll see. It's, it's an ugly little moment. Uh, it's how real politics plays yeah. out in, in 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 what we're going on, and I think it does. Uh, what I what I think the problem is is why I was thinking if I can speak for for your Israelis, right? I don't know what who gives me that voice to speak, but since I got the microphone here, I will, right? Which basically well, you said, also have a uh, citizenship. So I do have helps. citizenship, so so I'm speaking for you know Middle Israel, right? Let's say the most Israelis. You look at that and you say. So, you know, like, how can we really enter in long-term agreements when, in the end of the day, when they're having problems at home, they're just going to turn turn that fire up towards us, right? So then you look at the Palestinians, which 25 years of Oslo have put us in very difficult positions with them again and again. So how can we come to long-term agreements with, with our Arab neighbors? 
Yeah. Was, was that clear? Was that articulate? I think so. I, 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 think, I think that's a rough comparison because the leadership of Jordan is an organized... And even there, you see yeah, it happen. That's, what, that's my point. Is that even there, that there seems to there seems to still be this underlying thing that the truth is, with all these peace agreements, with these talks, with what happened with Egypt that we've talked about last couple episodes, and and with Jordan, that in the end of the day, we are really still not, we're still other in the Middle East. Sure. Even with our supposed friends. Right. So that's what I'm saying. I think as a, as an Israeli, that kind of. It is a rough neighborhood to have to self have self rule as a Jewish country. Middle East yeah. is not is not where you would have ideally placed the Jewish homeland. Yeah, but there it is. So that's the way it goes. Now Oslo itself, if you want to explain what Oslo is, I, I would just do it very on one foot. Hey Matt, how's it going? Welcome. Thank you, thank you. I apologize for my late arrival. No problem. We're just—you came at a perfect time. We're just about to discuss Oslo. I'm going to sort of give a very on one foot summary of what happened at Oslo. Basically, after 1967, when Israel conquered land from the from uh, Jordan, Syria, and Egypt, it conquered the Golan from Syria and the Sinai from Egypt, which we won't doesn't really relate to Oslo, but it conquered the West Bank from Jordan and the Gaza Strip from Egypt, and didn't annex that land because it was heavily populated by Palestinian Arabs, and so didn't want to, uh, so Israel cho- Israel couldn't really withdraw, because you can't, after a war, withdraw, with, Israel said, well, without an agreement. Yeah, if you make peace with us, we'll withdraw, and no Arab country, they, the right. Arab League decided together not to make peace with Israel. So Israel held it, but didn't annex it, and make it officially part of the state, because that would mean enfranchising the people who live there and giving them citizenship. So Israel managed it, which is what we called through the military. So it's, yeah. that's why it's called a military occupation. Right. Because uh, Israel's military is the one that administers. Right. Not the Israeli the government, the Israeli army. Yeah. Jews started moving into the West Bank and Gaza, which is the what people call the settlers movement. Um, and in 1987, the children that had grown up under Israeli military rule, didn't remember Jordanian rule, started a popular uprising against the Israeli military that we call the first intifada, which really started in this sort of, and it was very much portrayed in the media, I think fairly accurately, as a sort of David and Goliath, young kids throwing rocks uh, at soldiers and tanks and things like that. So that made a major shift in Israeli self-consciousness about, it made it made Israel's presence in the West Bank politically problematic. Uh, and then in the early 90s, Israel sat down and through a bunch of back-channel connections, not a, a, a sort of medium-level management, right. sat down with medium-level management from the Palestinian side and worked out sort of the framework of an agreement. Um, well, I'd like to say it a little differently. Not a framework for agreement, more like a framework for discussing the agreement. Yeah. Which really was it like the you know what the Declaration of Principles, yeah. which really is just the way that how we're going to come and and there's, there's three fundamentals to those. That's why I teach right in Oslo. There's three fundamentals to Oslo. One is that we there will be no more fighting, right? Like violence, physical violence. That everything will be negotiated whenever there's an issue will be negotiated. And three, the third thing is there will be no unilateral moves, which is part of two and three are pretty are like yeah, two sides of the same coin. Very. Connected, of course. Yeah. Well, all three are very connected. Yeah. You're not no violence. So you're going to negotiate. I mean, they're all right. inter they're all they're related. All interlinked for right. sure. The other factor was, and this was something that the Rabin government uh, campaigned against, was that as the Palestinian counterpart to negotiate with, they uh, negotiated with the PLO and w- with its head Yasser Arafat, right? Which Israel considered a terrorist organization by entering into the Oslo discussion framework. 
they became the Palestinian Authority, and Israel agreed to give them increasing autonomy as Israel had increasing withdrawal from the right. West Bank. And so I think there's important two points to bring up. One that, as I also always say in class and stress, Oslo, many people mistaken, was not a peace agreement. It was really – and it was always called the Oslo Accords, which was a framework to get to a final status – Peace, well, the goal you know, was to reach a status, peace agreement, right? Right, it, it, the goal, but it, it never got there, um, as we can clearly see. Um, and in general, the thing that was pushing it, as I, I sent you that Douglas Fife article, mm. right? And But I think it, it, he's not saying any big chiddish. The thing that was pushing it is that Israel had really had enough of sending its um, uh, troops, both reserved and standing army, into major Arab uh, urban centers and policing. It had turned its army really into a police force. And that was never the consciousness of the army. And it really wanted to stop. And they wanted to stop dealing with issues like well, trash called, removal. Yeah. And, you know, it's having, called the Israel Defense Force. Yeah. And managing the Gaza Strip yeah. isn't yeah. something armies are right. or, designed to do. Right. Or Ramallah or Janine or all these places. So Israel was very much wanted to get out of those areas. And they just well, didn't want to Well, there's a more fundamental problem. You're going to at some yeah. point have to uh, – you know, either reel it in or cut bait. You're going to have to take the West Bank and Gaza and either right. make it part of Israel, in which case you now have millions of Arabs added to the Israeli voter right. rolls, or you have to rule them without giving them citizenship, which would make Israel essentially n- not a democracy. So you, right. you, you, can't, you can't annex the West Bank and Gaza and have Israel be both Jewish and a democracy. Right, and we talk about that triangle in... Yeah. In class, right? right. The, the tension between a Jewish, democratic, and the, what we call the land of Israel. Our homeland. Our whole land of Israel. Homeland, even though something's got to give. Even yeah. though the borders, even that, the borders that we talk it's about between the, ancient, the, right. the, Jordan, the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea are not the ancient borders either. So no, it's the kind ancient of borders funny. include large swaths yeah, of right. Jordan and Syria. Jordan, and Iraq, even. It's amazing, Iraq. That part part it's amazing to have that conversation with students after we've studied the, uh, the occupation unit in our course and say to them, okay, here's the triangle. One of these three things that Alan just mentioned has to give. Which one would you choose to to give up? And you can see a lot of the students really grapple with it and they really can't decide which because for them to say, okay, I'm going to give up on democracy sounds completely absurd. They just can't fathom and they just can't deal with that. And then you say to them, okay, so don't choose to give up democracy. Okay, but how can I give up the ancient Jewish homeland? All right, so don't give that up. They're like, but then it's not Jewish. Okay, well, you have to choose one. One of those three has to go. And it's very... Um, revealing. It's a very difficult conversation, but it's a great. Uh, That's the dilemma Israel has faced for fifty years, and I think yeah. I think fight is fair in saying that that is a consideration not usually brought to the fore when yeah. discussing the Oslo process. That Israel has its own, in its own self interest, the need to do something right. about the West Bank to get that problem off our off our backs. Right. But I, I I don't know that he's being totally fair when he says it wasn't about peace. Yeah, again, it depends who you, who you talk it's a to and issue. who and who you talk to and who who's you know. Um, and, and there's clearly was, as you said, there was uh, as as the process developed, there is clearly an idea to get to some kind of peace agreement. The cultural so, consciousness in Israel know. was we can finally make peace. That yeah, certainly sure. was, and that's certainly the rhetoric that we were getting from politicians. Right. When when Fife points out that there's a real politic issue underlying, which is that Israel has to either commit suicide as a Jewish democracy or find some way to get out of the West Bank and Gaza problem. He's right. Of course. Of course. 100%. Well, I think it's also interesting to try and – I mean, I know we're not talking about the disengagement now. I know our focus is Oslo. 
But if you compare the two processes of how of motivation and how it happened and why it happened and what the result was of those two different processes of Oslo and then the disengagement in 2005, it's it's a fascinating thing to see. How well, that happens to be a personal bugbear of mine, that people okay. treat the disengagement as part of the peace process. The, it, the, the withdrawal has nothing no. to do. It completely goes against the framework of Oslo. It is unilateral. It is not negotiations. And people constantly say, we tried to make peace by withdrawing from Gaza, and it didn't work. We were not trying to make peace by withdrawing from Gaza. We were worrying about that demographic problem and and withdrawing to protect the integrity yeah. of Jewish democracy. The door was locked and the gate was locked and that was it. Yeah, we're no. done we're done with well, was, we're done with yeah. trying it was explicit. Sharon was explicit. Was, we're not going to try to make peace because it didn't work. Oslo right. didn't work. So let's just withdraw from Gaza. No, they just didn't want the headache of administrating Gaza anymore. Again, I, that's I, what Sharon, I'm saying they're all different in addition factors, to which are interesting in to debate about this. Yeah. Well, the, I, withdrawal from Gaza does not fit into the Oslo conversation. It was not part of that process. No, it defined I, I actually, the process. I actually say that that's the end of the process. That's the defining end. Um, because, because as I say again, as I call uh, the second intifada the pre so the second intifada is the uprooting of it from the Palestinian side. The unilateral move of, of leaving of leaving Gaza is Israel's it's five defining years later. moment. Yeah, it's five years later. Israelis yeah, yeah. have now concluded yeah, that there is no that. Oslo process. Yeah, yeah. Because of Palestine, and therefore we can leave, and that so that that's when it's clear that there's no there's no Oslo left. Yeah, but you keep bringing up the difficulty of administration. It's yeah. more existential than that. It's not just that it's a headache. It's that the the Jewish democratic nature of the state is threatened. Even yeah. if let's say let's say management it's is true, super but I, I'll easy. be honest with you until I. Until I started teaching this years later, I never remember that as a consciousness. And I do remember the constant talk about we've got to stop going in there. We've got to stop milling our boys. It's like it's the same reason for leaving Lebanon. Sure, because the, that's the, the four mothers movement that pulls out of Lebanon. We don't want our boys there anymore. That, that that's my because when you of reference. say to voters, where do you want your eighteen to twenty one year old being a you know running a police action in Arab towns? That's what the Israeli voter responds yeah. to. But there's no question, and this I think Fife was right about that. That the consciousness of the leadership was, we have to get away with this problem. And Sharon, in 2005, leaving Gaza, was 100% explicit. He wasn't talking about management. Sharon was talking about the existential threat. That, that was the... Uh, uh, that, that's, not my, uh, that's not my like memory frame of reference. Yeah. So, uh, you know, was, was the, there's too many rockets on the, on the communities in Gaza... There's too many... That, that's my, frame of reference, my memory frame of reference. As well. So curing those communities, the actual... Uh, military uh, presence was required to secure communities, which numbered one, no more than ten thousand people. No, it was less. It was like eight thousand. It was like eight thousand yeah, and was, uh, a million point seven Arabs, something right, like was that. Was considered to be just too much of a burden as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yesterday, one of my students asked me an interesting question, and I don't want to get. I mean, it's funny to not want to get political, but we're going to get political here, I guess. But he asked me, he said, "Is there a popular movement in Israel that uh, Israel would basically uproot all the Palestinians?" from the West Bank and move them somewhere else? Would there be support for that? And people were asking this, like, look to him, like, well, how would there be support for this? Like, you're talking about removing millions of people from their homes. Yeah, that's know? ethnic transfer. Well, yes and yes. <laughs> so we, we went through that. But also somebody said to him, well, could you imagine if we were in the army and we were responsible for loading somebody on the back of a truck? Like, what would that make us? Trucks don't work so well. Cattle cars, I think, are better for that. Well, I hate to use yeah, the, the imagery that, you, that you've now introduced, but fine. He said, how would that make us feel? What sort of people would that turn us into? And I think that's part of this thing about we're talking about the soldiers yeah. and their parents yeah. and the 
the, our kids, right? Our teenage children are, are doing things. We ask them to do things which are... Well, it's also the kind of thing that it, you, you have to do that so hypothetically that you ignore the logistics of moving two and a half million people yes. against their will and the yeah. resulting uprising that would come from them, from our Arab neighbors, and from the international community. Yes, but it's less now, but don't forget 20 years ago... 25 years ago, it wasn't just teenagers, right? There's Miluim that came in the reserves yep. who into their mid-40s uh, were doing this stuff. There's lots of reserves were patrolling in the in the And uh, where if, you know, you see a kid areas. throw a rock at you, break his arm. Yeah. And what's he going to do about right. it? So it, 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 was, it was a politically divisive time. Israel, which I, until the Lebanon War in 83, Israel had – that's sort of the Vietnam period of Israel's mm-hmm. history where you have this real different sense of who are we and what are we – going for what are we supposed to become here yeah. really rising to the fore and it the second intifada really kept that the first intifada rather really kept that going after the failure of the final status talks in oslo in 2000 when uh ehud barak as prime minister offered what he what he thought was the maximum possible israeli offer and the clinton administration agreed and arafat walked away followed by the explosion of terror, which had which had gone on through the nineties during yeah, during that's the why quote unquote optimistic. That's time. how Netanyahu beat Perez because yep. it was a terrible, you know, terrorist bombing wave in nineteen ninety six. The framing of the the framing of the terrorism in the nineties is we're in a process to get to peace, and these are the people trying to derail it. Don't they're, let they're them win. That was the literature, just like you have victims of war, you have yeah. victims of peace. Yeah. Le Shalom, that's and it was an incredibly difficult political divisive time. And then in two thousand, when Arafat walked away. Yeah. From what was what the Clinton administration said was that's it that's the Palestinian state that will work, Arafat walked away and the explosion of violence yeah. that came in the early two thousands over a thousands of Israelis dead within yeah. four or five years, and that changed Israeli that that now you it was a return to Israeli unity and a sense that this was never going to work with these people with Arafat that, and with the PLO and it kind of pushed the left to to the sidelines politically in this Crushed country. Them. I think you know, you're being gentle in yes, your language. It crushed the political left and, and took away their ability to offer meaningful a meaningful voice to the Israeli electorate for the most part right. because they were seen as – during the 90s, they were saying, look, we're getting somewhere. And when that door slammed in Israel's face, the Israeli voters were like, you don't know what you're right. talking about. And we can see the, the ripple effect of that still today with the government that we have in this country Correct. and the – and as you call it, the marginalization of the left. One of you used that word. The other one said it was a generous term. But that—that's what it is still. Yeah, um, yeah. Then, uh, I hope. So, so now that we've fulfilled the 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 mitzvah, right, of the ganai of starting with the negative, uh, maybe we could focus a little bit on the positives that have come out of Oslo. Well, I'll leave one more negative of, before okay. we move on to the positive. <laughs> I tried. That to, is, I tried. That. <laughs> no, that that everything you, that was meant, the, everything that in, in the in the process that was supposed to lead to peace were interim steps. And by not finishing it, we're left with a series of incoherent uh, interim steps that are dysfunctional at long term. It's like building a house, but only half finishing it. It's actually more and then dangerous. Moving in. And then, and then it's more in. dangerous than actually. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's, I think, that's, I think, where we are. Um, Okay, let's hear the okay. good news, Alan. Nice analogy. That pick, picked me up. <laughs> <laughs> so the good news is there are, there were, there are lots of benefits that came of Oslo, and I, I really think it's important that we talk about them and that, that they're put out there because most people see Oslo in the micro, like we've been talking about, which is it's just a process that has to do with the Palestinians. But the truth is Oslo is a much bigger process that has a macro, uh, a, a massive macro, big, big picture element to it, which is um, – 
uh, first of all, Israel stops becoming a pariah state in the world. Yeah. Right? There was a huge boycott. We talk about boycott BDS today. It's nothing. It's a joke. Like we talked about last week. Every we time about, you like, have Doritos or Cheetos yeah, or Pepsi, yeah. remember that it was Oslo that, that, that dropped. Enabled. Yeah, that dropped the Arab boycott of Israel, which meant that any company that did business with Israel, any international, would be boycotted by the entire Arab world. The explosion of of R&D in Israel of of high-tech companies is is a direct result of that Mm -hmm. Um, because all of a sudden it was perceived that Israel is no longer pariah. They're not boycotted. Their products that that are developed here can go all over the world, and there can be investment in the economy. And also there's a sense of, okay – yeah, it's not perfect, and there is fighting, and there is violence, and all this. But but the country is marching to peace. So that means stability, um, and so then you can invest in the country financially. So that, that's why it's adorable when BDS gets somebody to not buy sabra hummus in a co-op in Brooklyn, yeah. as if that's going to hurt Israel. I mean, the Arabs no, had that, a real a, boycott. The fact that there's sabra hummus in Brooklyn right. is, is is already right. like crazy, right? If right. you look back, so I'll add so, another good. Mm-hmm. That is. That Israeli parents can look their kids in the eye and say, this is a country that puts itself out there for peace in in very strong ways. Part of the country didn't want to, part of the country did. But Israel offered the mountain ridge of whether you call it Judea and Samaria, Yehuda Shimron, or the West Bank, whatever you want to call it. It is the mountainous high ground over where 90% of Israel's population lives along the coastal strip. We were offering them the security Buffer. Advantage. Advantage in an effort to really come to terms with not being an occupier. And it was rebuffed. And you can say that the offer— By the way, I, I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't say we offered and rebuffed. I wouldn't use that language because the truth is, again, we're not at that state where there's a Palestinian state and, rebu- and it has its own— Well, but, by the leadership. But they do control, right? The P- Palestinian Authority controls great parts of, not all of it, but 40, more than 40% of those lands that you're talking about. And the uh, vast cities. majority of the Arab population. Yeah, and the vast majority. So, so even though they're not a full state, they are autonomous. They do have their own security forces. They run their own lives. And that's in Israel's high ground, like you're talking By about. By the way, so. I think the quality of life uh, in the West Bank has, has somewhat improved economically. You have more middle class. Uh, but overall, right. that's not a great story for the Palestinians in terms of their leadership taking care of them. Uh, their leadership being responsible, uh, and certainly the Gaza Strip, that hasn't gone well for them. So if Israel's, if, if part of Israel's goal was, look, we can have a better future when our neighbors are more secure, I don't know that that's a realistic assessment. But in terms of the management issue, yeah, a lot of the... Uh, no, I also think this, this idea of recognition is also a big positive that we can take. That uh, whether, very you, good. whether you agree or not that there's a genuine partner for peace or either side is genuinely interested in peace. The fact that they don't recognize each other um, is huge. Uh, there's a video clip that we show, our, our, some, some of us show our students, where there's a discussion about that basically prior to Oslo, that this kind of like very cloak and dagger meetings that were taking place in London. It's something like out of a James Bond movie because they weren't allowed to meet with each other, but they were sneaking into hotel lobbies to meet with each other that they nobody was allowed like to meet. Like but basically, yeah, like like the Imbal Hotel. What kind of dates did you <laughs> go on? Now? <laughs> that, that nobody. Not that I blame the girl. I mean, if I was on a date with you, <laughs> that nobody was allowed to see like an Israeli and a Palestinian meeting with each other. I mean, that's crazy if you think about it. How are you supposed to negotiate even the beginnings of a deal before or anything if you can't be acknowledged as seeing sitting with each other? Right. And also change that. Right. I mean, I will be the dark cloud to your silver lining Please. and say, as always, <laughs> that they they recognize Israel as existing as a state but not its right to be a Jewish state. 
okay. which is an existential characteristic of Israel that they still refuse to identify. So it definitely – look, it cleared things like uh, we, we don't always pay attention to the enormous security apparatus cooperation between Israeli and Palestinian forces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the Palestinian forces who engaged many of them in the Second Intifada and in participating in terror are now – it is now considered by the leadership in the interest to stop terror and are now cooperating, you know, hand Look, in glove with we, the Israeli the army. The fact that we don't have a much higher violence in the West Bank yeah. is due to the Palestinian security services. I think and, it's clear. And the Israeli army. It's, it's always – the idea of always but is that, But that level of cooperation yeah. is – Also yeah. what Matt was saying about the – um, the leaders meeting like surreptitiously. I remember reading in uh, Michael Oren's book, Power, Faith, and Fantasy, about America's involvement in the Middle East since 1776, since the founding of America, um, that at the very end when he got up to this chapter in history when Cl- the, the famous picture on the South Lawn of the White House of Clinton, you know, ha- having them shake hands, Arafat and, um, Rabin. A- and Rabin shaking hands, and then he discloses all this information that like Clinton was barely involved in any of the talks. And yet this picture shows the U.S., you know, as the mediator of of all all this, you know, agreements and treaties. And they really just did it on their own, basically, which is something that I didn't know because I was right. very, very young when this happened. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is exactly the break that Matt's talking talking about 100 percent. Right. That 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 is a very positive thing, even if even if it's yelling and shouting at each other, there is a positive thing that we're doing at each other and not through a third party, which is what happens with Hamas. Yeah. Right? With the, we don't talk directly. We, don't we direct still do the, the yeah. behind the, the third know, party because we don't the recognize table. them as a legitimate representative of the Palestinian Nobody people. does. Right. So, Including the Palestinian Authority. It's a much right. more Middle East way to do things. We've discussed this before, but you actually talk to somebody and you disagree with them and you argue and you negotiate and you backslap and you all those sorts of things. And eventually something comes out of it. But if you're working through a third party, that shook mentality doesn't yeah. exist. That shook culture can't can't work. So yeah. yeah. So why didn't the shook ment so so again I'm gonna be the storm cloud. Why why did the shook uh, system of Oslo not work in the end? Uh, well five again million uh, billion that, What do you mean not work? Question. Define not work. Uh there Israel is still in the West Bank and the Palestinians still don't have true autonomy. Uh, Those true, the, don't have self-determination. Yeah. True self-determination. Don't have self-rule. I think I, I would like – I'm going to be the positive guy here for change. <laughs> I would like to think that in – you know, when we look back on this in another decade or two, we'll say, yeah, those were tough years, but we finally got through it. And and I think that Matt maybe and what the Rena were we're saying – now, you mean. Yeah, and that Matt and what Rena, Matt, and Ma, Rena and Matt were stressing may, may be exactly that turning point, which is the fact that we – as long as we continue to talk to each other – that 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 is the positive. That's what we have to focus on. That tiara of optimism looks very yes. pretty on your. Thank own. you, <laughs> thank you. I like your thorny crown there. Thank you. My thorny <laughs> crown uh, is saying that as long as the Palestinian leadership and people don't recognize the Jewish narrative of this is our homeland, that all the talking in the world is just managing the chaos a little bit less, so that there's less violence, but it's impossible to move forward. That's that's the missing piece, I think. I think there's evidence to support it. All right. Well, we're out of time this week. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Alan, Rena, and Matt. And Ben. And Ben, of course. Ben goes without saying. Yeah, we're getting so used to being here. It's like our it's true. Our, it's our like our home away from now, home. You know, so. He's a bit worried just how comfortable we feel in here. <laughs> Wait till we get him to like audio him. hook up all of our uh, classes. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. 
Uh, this is the part where I remind you that we are the JU Israel Teachers Lounge podcast. And it's also the part where I ask you to subscribe, to rate and review us, and to share and recommend us in any way you can. Also, we'd love your feedback so we can respond to you on or off the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Thanks.